Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Rehumanized Podcast. capital punishment and halting executions. He has been one of the leading organizers in this movement since he changed his mind on the issue in the late 1980s. I'm really excited to have Abe on to talk about his story, the death penalty, and how you can get involved in this important work. Welcome, Abe. I'm glad to be with you, and it's an honor, and I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned in your intro that you got involved when your mind changed on the issue. Um, I think that's something I hear pretty commonly that like people who are sort of raised with an opinion, it's just sort of something that you believe and it's whatever. Um, but when you think something else and then you're convinced of the other side, it sort of becomes uh, not more important, but, um, a greater focus for a lot of people. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and what, what brought you over to the good side? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, I think it, like most people, you know, we're blessed not to have encountered an awful crime in our lives. And, um, you know, so you don't even have to think about any kind of retribution or criminal justice uh, matters. And, and that was certainly my, my situation. I, growing up, the worst thing, I can remember happening was my bicycle being stolen. You know, we've, and, and, and you know, maybe I should say maybe not most people, but <laughs> most people in my experience uh, don't have that kind of experience. So we go on a gut reaction of what we think sounds right, you know, and, and, and I know that, you know, you hear about an awful crime, especially when the victim is a child, for example, then, and you think, you know, that person deserves whatever they get coming. Uh, so for me, not having had anything but the gut reaction when I hear about it, uh, I happened into a meeting of a group called Amnesty International. And it just happened. I went to it deliberately after signing up, after hearing a speaker talk about his escaping from refugee camps at my place of work. Somebody in the, had put a pile of brochures on a table in the back of the room, and I picked one up on my way out and, and read it, and I I thought it sounded right. I joined. Uh, I checked the box to tell me about the nearby group meetings, and they sent me the information for the, the student meeting at Ohio State University. I was already out of school, but I was still very young, in my early 20s. And I went to the meeting. And I what I remembered about Amnesty International is that they work to free people who have not used or advocated violence, who are in prison for their identity anywhere in the world. People who are referred to as prisoners of conscience. And I hadn't only gotten much beyond that. At that time, the mission was very focused uh, for amnesty. It was also uh, getting fair and prompt trials for political prisoners and stopping torture and executions. Well, I had missed that last part. It didn't connect for me. So I was surprised when the speaker at that meeting was talking about the death penalty. And I argued with her. I said, hey, 
This is the United States. We have the best justice system in the world, and if that includes the death penalty, that's fine with me. I'll pull the switch myself. And that was my gut reaction. That's what I felt needed to happen. And, you know, I was tolerated in that amnesty group. I would go to meetings because I, I was interested in what they were up to. I would go to meetings and say, uh, and, and get up and say, hey, I'll work to stop executions in places like Russia and South Africa, which at that time, those countries had the death penalty. They don't anymore. Uh, but I would say, not here in the United States. We've got our, we've got the best system in the world. Well, I set out to try to prove those people wrong. And in trying to prove them wrong, I found out that everything I believed about the death penalty, the truth was the opposite. I thought we had a system that was fair and treated people equally. I thought we always got it right. And I was mistaken. And, and interestingly, it was the learning about um, the disparity of the death penalty. In, in particular, I'd gone to a, a conference and there was a man there speaking, uh, Professor Michael Andrus, a professor of criminology at, at uh, Xavier University in Cincinnati. And, and he basically gave Ohio statistics. I'm from Ohio. I grew up in Columbus. That's where I live now. Uh, and, and he said, look, if you're going to kill somebody in Ohio, just don't do it in Franklin County, Cuyahoga County, or Hamilton County. That's uh, Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati. The counties with a large tax base because they're big cities. If you kill in a rural county, you, they can't afford a death penalty trial, and therefore the death penalty is not on the table. And I remember, I can picture it right in my mind, sitting in a lecture hall uh, and, and hearing this guy talk. And I, I have in my mind a white picket fence and myself just kind of leaping from one side of the fence to the other, uh, having heard that. That's the image that's in my mind. And, and for a while then, I would get up and say, hey, there are people who deserve whatever they get coming. But we have a system that's not fair and equal, and we have to work to fix the system before we should use it, but we still need the death penalty. So, you know, I decided we need to make sure the system is fair and equal. And it was, uh, then I got involved in a program called the Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing, which at that time was a project of another organization called Murder Victim Families for Reconciliation, which is what it sounds like, victim family members who are, you know, opposed to the death penalty. And the Journey of Hope from Violence to Healing was a project led by murder victim families. It was a speaking tour. And they were doing the very first one in uh, Indiana, three weekends, and the two weeks in between, just going around the whole state, speaking in schools and uh, communities of faith and other kinds of groups, anywhere we could get an audience. Murder victim family members, the families of people on death row, the families that they executed, exonerated, innocent, exonerated death row survivors, people who have what I like to call a voice of experience on the issue, who have been in it, sharing those stories. And it was by being on the journey and hearing these stories that I came to understand what I like to call the collateral damage of the death penalty. It's not just about a victim and a killer. It impacts, you know, communities far beyond just the victim and the killer. Uh, they each have families. I mean, the police who have to come upon the scene and, and the coroner and the people who clean it up and the people in the courtroom and the jury that has to look at the pictures and the prison guards. All, there's so many more people that are impacted by this issue. And I came to understand 
that full picture. And I like to say the facts changed my mind and the journey changed my heart. And that's when I became a full-on death penalty abolitionist. It's not about what they did. It's about us and what we do. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think I hear that uh, that perspective that, you know, it, the death penalty is, is just or it can be just. We just don't have a just system, and so we need to fix the system. Um, and I think that, that that perspective of knowing all the people involved, especially, I think, centering uh, crime victim families, um, violent crime victim families, um, and I think that perspective is really important, um, especially centering crime victim families, um, victims of and victims of violent crimes um, who are survivors uh, in this narrative, because so often I think those are the strongest voices against the death penalty. Um, you know, I think, as I was saying, this argument of, you know, if it was just, if the United States never executed a single innocent person, we got it right every time. Um, and, you know, we got rid of all the disparities when it comes to um, zip code and race and class, um, that suddenly it would be okay that the state is killing people. Um, and I think that that is just not the right perspective. I think it's so important to bring it back to the idea that these are human beings uh, on death row, as were uh, the victims or potential victims and their families, um, and that that needs to be respected at every step. You know, people come at it from different places, and, and I think that's the key thing that we have to respect and, and that I've learned the hard way from making assumptions and assertions that, you know, you, you're never going to win an argument uh, or a debate if you just go in with I'm right, I'm right, I'm right and you, your perspective doesn't matter because you need to see my perspective, right? Uh, what I've learned uh, is that you really have to go to where the other person is that you're talking about and finding out, you know, find out where they're coming from, what their concerns are because there are people that are what I would call a moralist that, you know, through their faith or just their mindset no killing is ever appropriate or government can't be trusted with the power to kill uh, or uh, my religion teaches that we don't kill. Um, yep, there's, there's, you know, there's lots of people who are good faith practitioners according to the teachings of whatever their faith is when they're in the synagogue or in the church uh, or in the mosque or whatever it is. But then they go out and they become a secularist outside the confines of you know, of the synagogue or the church, right? And that's when, you know, the teaching of their faith doesn't always apply or they don't put that first, you know, and there's people that are, you know, everybody's got a different experience. And if you're coming into it with an experience that informs your thinking uh, or you don't have any experience to inform your, inform your thinking, but you have your assumptions or things that you've learned, you know, in school or from watching a movie or something, then, you know, you get to be open to understanding things from another perspective and, and looking at the bigger picture. And that's that's all we ask people to do yeah. is look at a different perspective. Uh, if, 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 if it's my job to help people change their mind, 
which I don't see that as my job anymore. I've learned that really uh, for us to win on this issue, uh, it's we don't have to change anybody's mind. We just have to get the people who agree with us to do things that help us move legislators. And, and most legislators also are not going to be so hard, you know, hard and fast. This is my position, you know, if you're a good legislator, then you're going to listen to what your constituents are thinking and, and you know, find a balance for how to meet the needs of all of your constituents. And if you're really focused on what's good public policy, it'll take you about two minutes to figure out that the death penalty is not a good public policy and that we can be safe from dangerous offenders and hold them accountable without executions. You know, and that's what we do the vast majority of the time. You know, so that's what a policymaker needs to look at, and 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 you know, and and again, as soon as you try to figure it out and try to fix it, you'll see that it's, you know, our legal, our criminal legal system is. And notice, I don't call it a criminal justice system. There isn't any justice here. It's a legal system that is broken, and especially if we're going to have the death penalty, you know, then if we can't get it absolutely right. And I'm not talking about just making sure we have the right person, but also about having a fair process that treats everybody equally. Then if we can't do that, then we need a different ultimate punishment. You know, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the four words that are actually carved into the face of the U.S. Supreme Court building are equal justice under law. And if that is the bedrock foundation of our legal system, we absolutely don't have it. You know, your, your justice, what you get out of the system is different based on race and class and how much money you have in your pocket and what's the mood of the people in charge, the day that you're there. I mean, all of that can have an impact. So, uh, and that certainly doesn't bode well if you're looking for equality in the application of the law. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that issue of race within uh, the legal system is, uh, you know, very important to look at, uh, especially when it comes to sort of all all of the criminal justice system um, in in every in every level, um, whether it's it's pretrial, whether it's uh, before you are even arrested, uh, the interactions with the police, um, and it of course goes all the way up to the death penalty. And I think that um, almost everyone sort of recognizes that now. Uh, a statistic that I just learned uh, more recently that I think really shook me, um, because I think I knew that. I knew that there is racism uh, steeped within the criminal justice system. Um, but what really surprised me was that not only does the race of the offender or of the accused offender uh, play a role, but in death penalty cases, let me pull up the statistic to make sure I'm, I'm getting it right. Uh, a study in California found that those convicted of killing white people were more than three times as likely to be sentenced to death as those convicted of killing black people, and more than four times more likely as those convicted of killing Latino people. Um, and so that to me is so clearly, uh, you know, a basis of value that we're placing on um, the victims of the crimes that, um, 
certain lives are clearly valued more than others and are taken into account um, and feel the need for retribution in some way more than other lives. And I think that uh, these disparities within the system are just so entrenched that for me, I sort of, I, you know, even if I was someone who thought that maybe the state should kill certain people, maybe if we got a just system, um, it could be acceptable. But, you know, looking at those statistics and looking at the history of the legal system, um, I just don't see that as possible right now um, or possible within my lifetime even. I think that uh, there's just so many levels of disparity at every single point, um, you know, after a crime has been committed that, you know, it's just, how could it ever be just to take someone's life over it? Hey, but even if it were, how can we trust people in a system to get it right? Yeah. And to be fair, you know, the, um, the, and you're right, the study that you mentioned from California is just one, but it's true across the country. And, you know, again, where I live in Ohio, we've had, I think it's 56 executions or so under the current law uh, since 19, you know, since we've had a death penalty, the current law in 1982. Well, two thirds of all the people who have been executed have been executed for the murder of white people, even though in this state, people of color are the victims of murder two-thirds of the time, right? Mm-hmm. It's and, and, and I actually, I want to say that I consider myself to be a victim's rights advocate when it comes to this. And I frame my work, and this, this comes out of the work that I've done with murder victim family members, uh, especially those who... You know, their loved one wasn't valuable enough for the government to seek a death sentence. Uh, Or, I mean, there are some where they did seek a death sentence and they stood up and said no. But at the end of the day, you know, when you look at all the people who commit murder, where they're caught, which is only about half the time that they catch somebody, uh, and and where they are what you call death eligible. So not every murder is death eligible. Some are less you know, less, uh, you know, second degree murder or whatever. You have to commit a capital murder, uh, which means that not only is it an extreme first degree murder, but also there are mitigating factors and aggravating factors that are considered, and the aggravating factors make it death eligible. Um, and uh, so, where they're death eligible, then where they seek a death sentence, Uh, So they try for a death sentence during a trial, and then where they actually get a conviction and a death sentence is a much smaller group, and then where the death sentence sticks, because about half of all death sentences are overturned during the appeals process, so uh, narrowing it down, it it boils down to this tiny little percentage of murder victim family members where the death penalty is even happening in their case. And it's actually a blessing in disguise now when you don't get a death sentence in your case because when there is a death sentence in your case, what's really happening is the government is asking you to put your healing process on hold and wait until we kill the guy and then you can begin to heal. Then you'll feel better. And I've heard it said so many times that, you know, victim family members where the killer is on death row, they wake up every day wondering, what do I got to do to see this sentence carried out? Uh, But it is literally decades Sometimes now two, three, 
more than three decades before we get to the point of execution. The last guy that was killed in Ohio, for example, was on death row for 35 years. Okay, and, and a lot of the people that were involved in the family of the victim weren't even around anymore. Uh, so, you know, when there isn't a death sentence in a case, but there is resolution, uh, a healing process can move on, can, can begin. And, you know, there's always going to be that empty chair at the table when the family gathers and no amount of killing is going to bring back our loved ones. But at least we don't have to, you know, put our healing process on hold. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't think about, especially, again, policymakers, politicians who like to stump on the death penalty and say, we need it for the victim families. And I always throw that right back at them and say, oh, if we have the death penalty for the victim families, then what are you saying to 99% of murder victim family members? Your loved one wasn't valuable enough. What do you have for them? And I actually don't work on this. What do you have for victim families? The fact is that most victim services are adjunct to prosecutors' offices, county prosecutors' offices. So um, if, if you're in a big county where they have a big budget, you might get more than if you're in a rural county where they have no budget for that sort of thing because murder is next to uh, practically never happens. So you know, there's all kinds of disparity, but I'm working on a project right now where with um, a victims group in, um, you know, they don't want it to be public that I'm working with them, but, uh, but they're basically saying, you know, we're exploring what is the minimum standard of service that any murder victim family should receive and how should that be delivered and by whom and, uh, and, and it should apply to everybody, not just uh, the worst of the worst kinds of cases, but any murder victim family member, because we don't have that right now. So many things, you know, so many victim services in this country are provided by what we would call non-traditional providers and so not professional social workers whose job it is to help these people, but the people who fall into it because it's their neighbor or a member of their church. Or And, and this is especially true on the poorer side of the railroad tracks, you know, where people are also suspicious of yeah, the prosecutors and the police and the government and, 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 and I just don't even want them coming around because of the negative experiences that they sometimes have had. So all of these things play into it. And this is what we advocate for when we're working to abolish the death penalty is not just stop the death penalty and stop sentencing people to death, but also let's redirect those funds to be more in service to the people in need, to victim families. And we've been successful at doing that in all unlimited basis. Um, you know, in Maryland, we had to pull that out of the bill, but the governor's office said they would put it into their budget, and I'm pretty sure they did. Uh, and in Illinois, they actually had a budget line um, called the Death Penalty Litigation Fund that was available for lawyers on both sides of capital cases to draw from for whatever their needs were. They changed the name of that fund to the Death Penalty Abolition Fund and made it for better services for victim families and also better training for law enforcement. So there was a win-win there. So 
those are some of the examples where it did work. But when we abolished the death penalty in New Jersey, we weren't able to mandate that funding. When we did it in New Mexico, there were three bills, two of which were about helping victim families, and those didn't move at all. But we did pass the abolition bill. So, you know, it's hit or miss, and getting legislation passed is always a struggle. Yeah. But you got to do it. And I'll tell you, it is a thrill when they pass your bill. Yeah, absolutely. And you directly and Death Penalty Action have been very involved in the recent uh, legislative changes to the death penalty in the states, right? Uh, well, in, uh, in some places more than other, others, um, you know, Death Penalty Action is a relatively new organization we were created uh, literally in the wake of the inauguration of Donald Trump because we, you know, I, uh, I had, uh, we saw that, you know, Federal executions would be resumed under the Trump administration. We didn't think it would take as long as it did. And there's a whole story behind that. But we knew it was just a matter of time. And, you know, my friends and I, we looked around the movement and saw that there really had not, that there had not been, or there wasn't an organization that was really prepared to support individual people and organizations that wanted to take action in protest executions. Um, and so we wanted to create that. And that's what we did. Um, and in the meantime, we have worked with a number of states. But but prior to that, so in 2017 is when we started Death Penalty Action. But I've been doing this pretty much since the early 1990s. And we went through a really bad time of lots of executions and lots of laws getting worse and worse in the early 19, in the 1990s and the early 2000s. I think it was 1998. We had our peak of like 98 executions in one year. Um so that was a pretty bad time with lots of executions. But then we started getting strategic and looking at how do we actually start peeling away the states. And, and um, so I became the, I was hired to be the field manager in New Jersey, which in uh, 2007 became the first state to legislatively repeal the death penalty since 1964. And after that, I was hired by the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty to become their director of affiliate support. And as I saw it, my job was to help all the other state groups, you know, build their capacity to pass legislation. And my first project you know, at least my, the boss said, go see what's happening in New Mexico. And we did. And in 2009, we abolished the death penalty in New Mexico. Then Illinois came onto the radar. And in 2011, we abolished the death penalty in Illinois. In 2012, in Connecticut. In 2013, in Maryland. That's the other, the next state uh, that I had a real heavy hand on. Uh, I actually organized because our office was in Washington, D.C., and I lived in Maryland. And, you know, we said to the, you know, the Maryland state organization came and said, uh, we want your help. And we said, well, we, if we're going to do that, we want something solid that we can sink our teeth into. And they said, great, organize in the Senate President's District. Uh, Senate President Mike Miller was, was God in Maryland. Uh, you know, the Senate President does, has a lot of power to decide what what bills get heard and when and all that. So I spent about two years organizing in his district and, and, um, and we finally were able to get him, not just my work, but the, the team uh, with a lot of different points of pressure, we were able to get him to say, okay. And, um, 
but but one of the amazing things that I did in, in that is I actually organized a forum on the needs of victim families that we did in a police station. And I got the Senate president to come and sit in the front row of that event and stay for the whole time. It was like my brightest feather in my cap, I think, <laughs> when I was able to get that done. Uh, but, you know, that's what we're where the work is. And so the Maryland 2013, uh, Nebraska was 2015. Now in that state, um, Nebraska is unicameral. It only has one body, a Senate. And actually more Republicans voted to abolish the death penalty in Nebraska than Democrats did. And because there are so few Democrats in that body. Uh, but, uh, but then Governor Ricketts, who's still the governor there, uh, he vetoed the bill. They overrode the veto, and then the governor uh, put his own money into a referendum campaign, put it on the ballot, and they reinstated the death penalty in Nebraska. And then they executed one guy since then, who happened is one of those cases, been on death row for nearly 40 years. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, in 2015, uh, that was Nebraska, 2000. Then since then, it was, we did New Hampshire, I think, in 2018. And then early this year, uh, um, uh, Colorado abolished the death penalty in in, uh, in the spring of 2020. So that's where we're at. And add those to the states that have that where we've been able to, to – well, the courts have thrown it out. That's Washington State, Delaware, and uh, New York. And that leaves us with – I think it's 21 states that don't have a death penalty now. And so we have these other states that do, plus the military and the federal government. Uh, but we're on a new trajectory now, and it looks like, you know, we've just elected a president. When he takes office, he's, he's committed to actually abolishing the federal death penalty. That's part of his platform. The Democratic Party has a platform to end the death penalty platform position. So, you know, that's the new horizon, and that's the work that Death Penalty Action is really taking on right now. We're, we're, we're shining a spotlight on this, this, this federal execution spree that's happening under Donald Trump, but we're also setting the stage for passing a death penalty repeal bill in the new Congress. Even if we don't win the Senate, I think there's still a way to get it done. So we'll see where it goes, but that's that's what we're up to. Yeah, that's great. So for those of us who do live in states that uh, currently have a death penalty, what do you recommend we do to get involved um, at that level? Uh, well, first, I want to say, if you, no matter where you live, you need to be talking to your uh, member of Congress, your, your state senators, each of us have two of them, and then we all have one representative. And on our webpage, deathpenaltyaction.org, there's an easy um, you know, push a button kind of letter writing action that'll help that'll figure out who your senators are, who your representatives are, and um, and and help you write a, a very short. I live in your district. <laughs> You're my representative. I support the bill to abolish the death penalty, and I ask you to do so. Okay, and then actually, you'll get an email after you do that that actually that has a link to how you find their actual their, their postal address. And we're asking people to write uh, a note, put it on, or type it, or how, whatever <laughs> type it. Um, you know print out or handwrite a note and put it in the postal mail with a stamp on it and send that because that actually carries far more weight than an email or a phone call. Uh, so we're asking people to do that 
no matter where you live. Uh, but if you're in a state that has a death penalty, you know, Google the name of your state and the words death penalty, and you should come up with the name of the state anti-death penalty organization. Most states that have a death penalty have an organization. Most, In most cases, those organizations are, you know, underfunded and depend on volunteers, and, and the biggest challenge for them is um, actually using people who uh, want to do something uh, and who volunteer, because it takes a lot of effort to get you know, to, to provide work for somebody that wants to do something. Uh, but that's going to be, you know, if you keep showing up, if you keep calling, uh, somebody will get back to you. And in some states, they're ready to go. I mean, it just depends on the state. And even if they don't have a, a strong, robust uh uh, organization, you can connect with your faith group, whatever body, whatever, whatever faith organization you might be a part of. Um, most of the mainline churches and and synagogues have some kind of social justice orientation that you can connect into. And at the end of the day, it's the same thing as with the Congress. You want to communicate to your state representatives and your state senators and make sure that they understand that you oppose the death penalty and you want them to support anything that restricts or repeals the death penalty. Um, and and that's what you can do on your own, too. Just talk to people and get other people to do exactly that. Communicate with your representatives, your elected officials, and ask them to end the death penalty. And then keep working to get more people doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, another way to get involved that I think you're a bit of an expert in is protest. Uh, when it comes to executions. Uh, Right now, things look a little different, I'm sure, with the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, I think that's something that I don't I don't see a lot of, which is why I appreciate death penalty action and the sort of high visibility, um, big banners, T-shirts, signs type actions. Um, I know that you have been involved in direct action, in including being arrested over this issue. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and uh, how people might uh, go about uh, protest when it comes to the death penalty? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the whole the, the point of direct action, and direct action doesn't always mean risking arrest, right? It just means being visible and visual and vocal um, and, and, and pointed in addressing your concerns to, you know, either where you see the evil happening or the people who can make the change, right? And uh, and sometimes it's about shining a spotlight on something, uh, and sometimes it's about actually maybe there's a place with a decision maker that you can create a shift. So, for example, I've been arrested at governor's mansions. Um, I've been arrested at courts. I've been arrested at prisons. Um but arresting, getting arrested is what you do, or risking arrest is, is what you do when the, when you're just not being heard otherwise. Um, and, and it's a, sort of a last resort. There's a whole matrix of things to consider when you think about, is this a time to get arrested? And now, of course, we put into that matrix because we're actually talking about, is it time around these federal executions? Um, the question of, is it, 
healthy? Is it safe mm-hmm. for us to risk going into the, the, the county lockup uh, even for a couple of hours? Uh, and, and the answer for many of us is no, I can't take that risk because it's, it's not just me getting in handcuffs and having a record. It's me, maybe getting COVID and dying, right? So, and spreading it to um, others. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, so that's a consideration. But, uh, but really, it's, it's about uh, what, what you're doing when you're protesting is you're standing up and saying, I see this evil. I want other people to see it. I want people to, to know that um, I want the people that are doing it to know that they're being watched. Okay. And what we've done in the era of COVID is we've created online vigils. I like to say that, that these protest activities have two purposes one is internal meaning it's for the people who are doing it we're doing it because we feel the the call to stand up and say this is wrong and and it's and it's so important to us that that we uh we must do something and also being together with other people of a like mind is energizing and soothing at the same time um, and comforting. So there's the internal piece of it. And then the external is spreading the message, creating more awareness. So, you know, what we've done is, is create visuals that give the media something to take a picture of, which is then an alternative to a picture of a gurney or a mugshot of a murderer. Uh, you know, and 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 of course, and when we're effective uh, at it, then you know the image that ends up in the media would clearly convey our message. And I call it a gold standard is when that message also includes you know, a way that people can connect with us—a hashtag or a URL or a phone number or some way that makes it you know, free advertising for us so that more people who want to get engaged, who are, uh, who come across that image can find us. But, you know, we've become pretty adept at this. And actually these days when uh, there is an article about the death penalty, often it's illustrated by an image of an action that our group has created and I'm very proud of that fact alone because, you know, if there are those in the movement say, why are you wasting your money? Why are you wasting your time doing that symbolic protest? And, and, and I, my answer to them is, well, internally it's for us and externally, look, we've created an alternative to the picture of a murderer or of a gurney, which, you know, nobody wants to see. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it really matters. I think with, uh, it, it, it's a matter of changing the narrative. I think, I think there's a big difference between a sort of sterile picture or, again, um, a, a death row inmate um, and, you know, someone holding a sign that says, don't kill for me. I think that, you know, it's it's making an argument before you can even read the article, even if the article is pro-death penalty. Um, so right. I would definitely agree that's important. I know that Rehumanize is very dedicated to making sure we get signs that protest Um I know that we made the mistake for a long time of making signs, but not having a URL or not having the at for social media. And so they would get, you know, thousands of shares and they'd be like, this message is so good. And then no one would ever find us. Um, And so I definitely agree that that making sure that people can be connected 
after they see the images uh, is very important and I think calls people to to Google and say, hey, are there people organizing around this around me or can I get involved nationally or even um, internationally? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at one of the stickers that you all sent me last year. Um, it says, ditch the death penalty. And it's got uh, some flowers coming out of a syringe with your, your at sign, with your, um, your uh, Twitter handle. So you guys do a great job with that. Yeah, thank you. Those are available online at rehumanizeintl.org slash shop. Uh, you guys also have some great merch, uh, T-shirts, stuff like that. Please plug that so our listeners can go grab some. <laughs> Sure, it's deathpenaltyaction.org. Just click on the merch tab. Um, and, you know, we've, I used to do all of that stuff myself. I was always, you know, and especially now when I can't do in person stuff, it's really hard to, to move a lot of this stuff. But, but you know, um, on our webpage, you can do it. And I also have a stash that I usually carry around with me when I'm doing things to these days, I like to just give it away. If I can get it paid for, then it's so much easier to just get it on people. And it makes a huge difference too, because when you're wearing a button or a t-shirt or you got a sticker on your car or something like that, it creates, it starts the conversation. And I will tell you that the vast majority of the time, the conversation is, hey, I like that. Where can I get one? Or or at the very least, why do you think that way? And it allows you to have that conversation. Very rarely does somebody say, you know, hey, so you're, you're, a, you know, you're a terrible person because you think that. Of course, I don't put it in those words. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's just another piece of the puzzle. You can be what I like to call a walking billboard anytime you want. Uh, and, you know, it's, I have to consciously think about, you know, making sure I'm not wearing an anti-death penalty t-shirt when, you know, when I'm doing that stuff with the family or going to the school with my kid or whatever. So that, uh, because normally, yeah, that's what's on top of the pile is, uh, because, you know, it's my free stash of, of abolition wear, I put it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. I, I feel like my entire wardrobe now is just uh, rehumanize and social justice T-shirts. And mm -hmm. I don't think about it because just I don't think I own any T-shirts that don't have some sort of either vegan or pro-life or uh, anti-death penalty or anti-war. Um, and I'll just go to the grocery store and people will be giving me funny looks. And I'm like, what's my problem? What's going on? And it's like, oh, I'm wearing something very controversial. Um, but it definitely starts conversations, especially uh, in social groups when you're when we're allowed to go and hang out with people and go to parties again, um, when it's safe to do that. It definitely makes a difference. And I know that, you know, I don't go around and just say, hey, do you want to talk about the death penalty? That's sort of a weird thing to do. But, you know, you notice a button on my jacket and maybe you'll bring it up and then I can, you know, make my case. Even if don't bring it up. You know, it takes, they say, a minimum of seven impressions of an idea or a concept for people to register it regularly. That's why they run TV commercials or radio commercials over and over again. The same billboard is up in five different places in town because you have to see it over and over and over again before you connect with it. So, you know, you end up being, I end up being the death penalty guy. At the grocery store, for example, I remember one time I was at the grocery store, and, and one of the workers there came up and said, "Hey, my kid's writing a paper about that. Can I can I connect you to?" I mean, okay, I don't mind being known as the death penalty guy, but at the same time, it's nice to be able to turn it off, and 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 sometimes 
you know, if I don't want to create that conversation in a party atmosphere, I just am careful about how I say it when somebody says, hey, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, we all get to turn it off once in a while. Yeah. Okay, I think the the only thing left that I wanted to talk about is the upcoming conference. You guys are hosting a conference. Uh, I'm not sure when this episode will come out, but probably later this week for the listeners. Okay, well, let's back up and just you know, make sure we're talking a little bit about what's been happening. Um, and so I talked earlier in the podcast about uh, the creation of our organization because we knew that the federal government might resume executions after uh, a long time of not having them. The last federal executions were under President George W. Bush. He had three in his entire eight-year term in office. And... Um, by the time that Donald Trump was elected, we knew you know there were more than sixty people on federal death row, and that you know January twentieth, two thousand seventeen, there were at least ten or eleven that had exhausted their appeals and were just waiting for a date to be set. We didn't really think it would take twenty seven months for them to set execution dates, but that's what it was. And when did they announce it? The day that Secretary Mueller, that the the, uh, investig- the special investigator Mueller was in Congress testifying about his work and their report, that's the day that the Attorney General chose to announce that they had set execution dates. Okay, uh, so it was a, it became a distraction. And then they at that time the federal regulations, which they've now changed, but at that time the regulations had always been there's a four month period of time between the date that the time a date is, is given to a person and the time that uh, they can actually execute them, and that's to allow the attorneys to properly prepare a clemency petition to ask for mercy and to get that in front of the president. Um, so the timing was such that they set these dates in Ju- in uh, they announced them at the end of July, and uh, and that created execution dates that would have happened last year in December, right at the beginning of the Democratic primary and caucus process, and uh, so that was a deliberate timing. Now, those execution dates got put off um, due to some legal challenges, which were set aside by the courts by April. And then they came out with resetting dates in June. They announced them in June this year. And we had our first federal execution in 17 years uh, in uh, July, July 14th. It was supposed to be the 13th, but uh, legal challenges held it up. Until midnight, we all thought, okay, well, that guy's going to have to get a new date because they didn't do it on that date. And what they did, and this is some of the legal hijinks that the Trump administration has practiced, they said, okay, you get a new date, it's in two hours, get on the table. And and that was that was totally outside the norm of the federal regulations for how that's supposed to happen. Uh, the attorneys are supposed to be able to, to receive that and deal with it. Um, Daniel Lee's attorney learned that he had been executed from a tweet, okay, and of course because of COVID, they couldn't even be in the prison. So, uh, what we knew then, and this is, was my suspicion, is that here's the timing again. It was because Donald Trump wanted to set up this tough on crime uh, law enforcement, law and order uh, persona, and he's always been, you know, very. Uh, 
full of bluster about being in favor of the death penalty, wanting more death penalty, these kinds of killers or these kinds of criminals should get a death penalty. But now he's had a chance to become an executing president. And, uh, and it's, been, it's been an execution spree. We had three executions in July, two at the end of August during the Republican National Convention, the week of the Republican National, National Convention, and that included uh, the only Native American on death row, on a federal death row, uh, and despite the opposition of the Navajo Nation, which opposes the death penalty and, and didn't want the death penalty sought, not just the Navajo Nation, and this was a crime where the killer, the victims, uh, were both were all Navajo, and it happened on tribal lands, and the uh, then U.S. Attorney General Ashcroft you know, found a loophole for them to get a death sentence for this case. In any case, they executed Lesbian Mitchell. Uh, so those were two executions in the end of, of August. There were two more in, in September, one more just last week as we're recording this in uh, November. And now uh, there's five more that are currently scheduled starting on December 10th, International Human Rights Day. Uh, we'll be executing somebody, then the next day on the 11th, and then, God willing, there won't be any more. And if they just stick with the ones that they have, then we'll get back to it on, July, on January 12th with uh, the only woman on federal death row. And this happens to be an individual who is severely mentally ill. Um, and had a horrific, horrific experience as a child that informed what she ended up doing, which was all of these are awful crimes, by the way. Uh, nobody is trying to dismiss them. But uh, J J January 12th, then a, a day off, then January 13th, I'm sorry, 14th, and the last one that's currently scheduled is a black man on Martin Luther King's birthday, uh, uh, January 15th and hopefully that'll be it and then inauguration day is the 20th and we're done with federal executions but our mission is going to be exposing and highlighting the fact that this is the first time since 1889 131 years since uh, uh, there was a federal uh, the execution of a federal prison prisoner by a president who was lame duck who was on his way out because somebody else is going to take off this next and that was became a fact and the true and and the situation with the execution of Orlando Hall on November 19th and uh, and and then they're just going to add to that so uh, that'll end up with a total of 13 executions right now Donald Trump is tied with President Eisenhower we have to go all the way back to the 1950s to have any president who's executed as many. Of course, that's eight executions under Eisenhower in his whole two terms, eight years in office. And Donald Trump has done that in 18 weeks. Okay, and by the time we get to, if we get all these other five, it'll be 13 executions in six months. And, you know, so he's always about being the biggest and the best and the mostest and the greatest. And that's what he's doing with the death penalty. Uh, and, and really, here's the good news. I mean, it's awful what's happening. But January 20th, it's a new day. Uh, we have a, a, a president who, at the very least, isn't going to execute people. Uh, he hasn't said that out loud yet. We have a petition on our webpage about 
asking Joe Biden to stand up and say no to uh, to these executions that are happening and to declare that he won't be carrying them out. Uh, and, um, you know, but then we have a Congress that we want to get set up to, to have Congress pass a bill in the first 100 days to repeal the federal and the military death penalties. And that's how people can, that's what people can do is get involved. Go to our webpage, deathpenaltyaction.org, sign the petitions. Uh, that'll get you on our list and I'll let you know what's happening. And if you do want to be involved in a protest, uh, we will be having a virtual protest as part of this conference uh, on the evening of, of uh, December 10th and December 11th and, and back to the conference. It is, uh, we're calling it, um, uh, uh, shoot, the name of it just dropped out of my head. Uh, it is um, uh, Human Rights in Crisis, the U.S. Federal Execution Spree virtual conference, Human Rights in, in, in Crisis, the uh, U.S. Federal Execution Spree virtual conference, and we've got some amazing uh, speakers, a great diversity of speakers, people like Sister Helen Prejean, uh, who was uh, the author of a book called Dead Man Walking, it's a whole other story we could tell, uh, and as well as, she's one of the heroes of our movement, but Amanda Knox, who was an exonerated person, she was convicted of a murder in Italy, and was convicted, and, and she got exonerated, and she's become a big, an outspoken person, um, uh, on, and a, and a, a sought-after speaker, so she'll be a part of it, as well as many others who are involved as murder victim family members, death row survivors, the families of people on death row, so Roderick Reed, whose brother is Rodney Reed on Texas death row, who was almost executed last year, Roderick will be a part of it, uh, families of the executed, families of people on death row, with some people in the legal community, communities, journalists, that we're going to have a couple of panels by Zoom uh, each day, starting with uh, on, on December 6th, all the way up through December 12th. Each day, there'll be programming online, and you can find all you need to know about it at deathpenaltyaction.org. Great. Yeah. Rehumanize as a sponsor. I will be there, you know, on the Zoom watching. Amen. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of other great sponsors. I highly recommend that everyone checks it out uh, and gets a ticket. Tickets are free, I believe. You can also donate, which I recommend you do. But tickets are free, so you can just sign up and come to the sessions you're interested in. Yes, and, and then uh, and then if you really want to get down to it, we will have uh, action, direct action in Washington, D.C. Uh, that uh, will be on December 10th in particular, but there's always a vigil uh, that we've been doing at the time of the execution. We, we've moved our location for these federal executions to be at Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., because that's about as close as you can get to the White House right now. Um, so Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., if you're anywhere, if, if you want to come out and be in person with these things. Um, and then we'll also have, um, uh, we, we've been having protests and we actually had to sue the state of the state police of the state of Indiana to get them to stop blocking our access. But we have a protest that occurs now uh, on the uh, just on the street corner that's across the street from the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. So if you're anywhere near Terre Haute, Indiana, which if you don't know know where that is, it's about an hour west of Indianapolis on I-70. Um, 
so it will be we have uh, the Terre Haute Death Penalty Resistance Network that is dedicated to having a visible, prayerful, peaceful protest outside the prison at the time of the executions. Um, and then we're also doing these virtual vigils uh, so that people can participate online. And that's actually become you know, one of the you know, silver linings or blessings of the COVID era is that it's actually making it easier for people to attend these kinds of things because you don't have to spend a thousand dollars buying a plane ticket, getting a hotel room and time traveling and all that. You can just get your dinner and sit down at your computer and be a part of it. Uh, so, so we're doing a virtual vigil uh, as part of the conference, but then they'll, they'll we'll also be doing that again. Um, with the executions, if they, if they continue, if Donald Trump uh, just ignores all of the pleas that we have to get him to see the light and stop these executions, we'll be doing the virtual vigils. All the information is at deathpolityaction.org um, or on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram. And then there's also the connected uh, Terre Haute Death Penalty Resistance Facebook page and, and all the many partner organizations are hopefully also spreading the word. So that's what I know. Thank you so much, Abe. This was a wonderful episode. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear it and get plugged in with your work and, and the work of the anti-death penalty community in general. Uh, I'm so grateful that you joined us. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm just honored to be a part of it and just glad that we connected and, and look forward to continuing the work together. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out our website at rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.